Welcome to this episode of the Vinyl Detroit Podcast. This is episode 14. Uh, so happy to keep bringing these to the listeners. I've had so much great feedback on all the previous episodes, and I hope you keep listening. Again, I'm not going to spend too much time on the introduction today because it is a little bit of a longer interview, but I did have the fortune of speaking with Finn and Carrick Morgarity of Bush Kings, and we discussed their 1997 self-titled album, On Sealed Fate. It's a fantastic episode. Uh, there's nothing like seeing or hearing, in this case, two family members talk about something they love. And in this case, it was music and all of the other influences and family dynamics that came into play. So again, I'm not going to spend too much time on the introduction. I'd like to get right to the interview. I am so proud for this episode 14 of the Vile Detroit podcast to have spoken again to Finn and Carrick Morgarity of Push Kings. Sunday puts the shades away Push Kings. 
uh, a band that I've really, really loved their work over the years and uh, really became enthralled and enamored with their debut uh, back a long, long time ago. I believe it was 97. And I'm very happy that they were able to join me today. Hi, guys. How's it going, man? Thanks for having us. Great to be great. here. Ho- yeah, hopefully you guys are doing well. I, I we, we caught up a little bit before we hit record, which was awesome. And um, today we're going to speak to I'm, I'm going to speak to you we're not going to speak i'm going to speak to you about the debut album push kings i'm super excited i've been listening to it almost every day and probably a couple times on sunday lately um <laughs> because i really really enjoyed it and it just wow. it's brought me back it's brought me back so much to just you know the recordings of that time and what that album meant to me and so i can't wait to kind of talk to you guys about it and, and, and really the band as well so if we could for those you know who maybe aren't as familiar with the band uh, if you guys wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about the origins, how you guys got started, and and really how it all began. Totally. Um, go ahead, Finn. You wanna Finn? Finn actually technically started the band at Harvard while I was still in high school in Connecticut. So I'll let him. Uh, That's let true, him but I was just I was just keeping a place warm for you, Carrick. You know, that, <laughs> that, was, that was always the plan. <laughs> I mean, Carrick and I have been playing music, and we're brothers, first of all, for those who don't know. Uh, and so you might mix up our voices as we talk for the next little while. Uh, but we we have been collaborating and playing music, you know, all through high school, basically. You know, we're two plus years apart, so we had a lot of friends and music and interests in common. Uh, and then, yeah, I, I went away to school and kind of got a, a combo going under the name Push Kings rather unfortunate uh, inspiration from uh, my Russian literature class. <laughs> but it's cool. Every band name has a, a you know, a quirky story. And, and so then once Carrick uh, moved up to Boston to go to school, he joined the band and we kind of got our, our sound together. And that was the beginning of the story. You know, within a few years, the album we're going to talk about today, the self-titled album, was in the works and released. And I'll That's just awesome. I'll just jump in with a few other details to add a little bit of color. So, you know, I would I would go up to visit Finn at Harvard every every couple of weeks if I could and very briefly, I don't know if you remember this Finn, but very very briefly I had a band in Hartford in high school and when I heard that Finn's band was called the Push Kings and I kind of knew that I was going to be joining the band like I think briefly, me and my little three piece in high school also were like, "Well, we'll be the Push Kings also." And so <laughs> I, did, I forgot about. So, that. so I think briefly, and maybe it was like a matter of like three days, but I think briefly there was this thing of like, "Okay, there are two Push Kings," and I would go up there uh, a couple times. I went up there and played shows on the weekends with with the the real Push Kings um, while I was still in high school. Um, and then that band ended up, I think we ended up changing our name to like old blue eyes and played like two shows or whatever. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I would go up and, and play shows with them. And it was, it was a really, you can imagine just like hanging out with your older brother and his cool friends. It was a really magical time for me. And, uh, Mm. you know, I was trying to decide where I was going to go to school and it was like, almost like I, I just had this really cool situation a cool band a brother with a bunch of cool friends you know like uh and and it was a really exciting moment to kind of like arrive at college already having a band that had already played some shows there and um so yeah it was it was 
it was definitely a really fun um, moment for us. And we did have a couple, um, we had been, as Finn said, we'd been recording in high school, uh, when both of us were in high school, Finn was at, at boarding school and I was at uh, like a day school, half an hour away. Um, and we did make some early recordings that I believe were called, yeah, we had, a, we had at least one tape, which was more or less an album, and then a few seven inches before this record that we're gonna talk about was made. True. So we'd all, yeah. we'd already kind of had this whole history and, um, this album was it kind of marked the a turning point in our sound where we where we you know we started out being very obsessed with like grungy indie rock like pavement and dinosaur jr and then we sort of decided to turn off the distortion pedal at least some of the time um <laughs> and that's kind of like where this record happened was at that like moment when we were like oh let's try something a little cleaner and more more um, I, I don't know how else to describe it. Yeah, except cleaner yeah. and and more civilized, I guess. It's true. Remember that, you know, like a lot of colleges, there was kind of a facility for recording. I guess you got like a recording yes. studio with an ISO booth. And, and so we kind of pretty quickly got to be friends with the people who had the keys to that. So we really cut our teeth just doing a lot of self-produced recordings or recordings produced by you know friends and classmates yeah you know working out like so many dozens of songs and often just kind of leaving them in the dust and and, and that was kind of the case with with the album i feel like we maybe had like two albums worth of material that kind of become the the lost push kings tapes uh, previous yes. to this right i want that so. stuff to come out actually i still <laughs> There, there's songs that I think about that I'm kind of like, man, I wish that we had released that. And I think, you know, there is one compilation of early stuff that you can get somewhere, but it's not streamable. And some random, you know, uh, collector emailed me recently about it was called Crimes and Acetate. And I think it had That's some right. of that early stuff on it, which I would yeah. really like to source and upload so that people can hear it. Um, but then Finn, I was also so today I listened to this to our debut album for the first time in many many years and me too. I was just okay, so Finn and I both did, and we were just sort of muse. I was musing about uh, all these songs and bringing you know all these memories were coming back. There's a few songs of Finn's that he used to record on like we both used to record on like a, a, a four track cassette um, recorder that you know I'm sure tons of people in the '90s used. Um, Finn's I did a Tascam. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and so there are a couple songs of Finn's um, that I really love. And I don't even know h how I might find them, Finn, but I would like to hear like Spanish <laughs> bombs again, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. We've got it. We, there's some there's some boxes we need to unpack at some point. Um, uh, yeah. So many deep cuts. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> So I think all of us should get together, maybe start a label, and the first release will be the there Lost you, Push King Tapes. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Love it. <laughs> It'll have to be like a double or triple album, though, Brian. Oh, yes, boy. I know. It's I don't very know. long. <laughs> I'm going to need some more financing for that, I think. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, one of you mentioned, uh, I think it was Carrick, the, the pavement uh, reference. And, you know, I was reading about you guys, and, and that was mentioned that you know, pavement was was one of those early influences. I'm just going to be honest here that I didn't hear anything prior to the debut album. Mm. So when I read that, I was like, pavement. Like I did, like <laughs> it, it might as well have said like ACDC. Like I was right. so shocked. 
<laughs> so, so I guess you know one of you mentioned that that the debut was really a turning point. You shut off the a lot of the distortion and things. What kind of brought you to that? I mean, wh why not why not continue on with that pavement sound, which was frankly kind of big then. What made you decide to kind of strip it down and do what you did? Well, one thing is we were just sick of being compared to pavement all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, to be fair, you know, they're amazing. And we were definitely yeah. kind of very inspired, let's say, by their sound. <laughs> yeah, we, we actually, our first seven inch, uh, we got Stephen Malcolmus to write the liner notes. Um, and he wrote something, of course, totally cryptic and, and like unrelated <laughs> to music. It was about like, you know, the push king straighten teeth like nobody else can, I think is the quote. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think I think it was a little bit of, uh, as Finn said, just wanting to differentiate ourselves. And then, um, I mean, I still love pavement. I still love a lot of that indie rock of that era. Um, I'm just, I'm assuming that we got into, a, I mean, I've, we've always also been into classic rock and you know, we knew who the Beatles were our entire lives, probably, but um, I don't think we got really deep into them, um, or I didn't anyway, get as deep into them as maybe the, the, the first couple years of college. And mm -hmm. um, and then also the, you know, a lot of Britpop influences, like we were listening to, I mean, Pulp comes to mind, but I don't think yeah. they're, they don't really have the sound that, that we ended up uh, uh, landing on. Um, it it might've just been in the zeitgeist a little bit, I gotta say, you know, because we, we, would, we would be compared to bands and then we would meet them and hear them for the first time. So like Holiday, for example, who I know you interviewed mm -hmm. recently, we, it's not like we heard them and we're like, oh, let's do something like that. But it's like we both kind of started playing music that was in a similar vein around the same time. Um, Sloan was another band, this Canadian band that we sure. were friends with and played some shows with who I think, again, arrived at a certain uh, musical identity around the same time we did. And, and we hadn't necessarily heard. So, yeah, I, I think I think it was kind of subliminal in a way. Um, mm -hmm that the kind of grunge and pavement type of stuff was uh, getting old for us. And we had already made a few, yeah. as we said, like a few seven inches and a few little tapes that were in that kind of vein. Um, but that's a good question. I don't really, yeah, I don't really have an answer. Yeah, I mean, one thing I think of is, is the, uh, Carrick, you were saying it's kind of a zeitgeist thing. Like that was definitely the time where there was this kind of you know, return to like retro and classic sounds and 60 sounds, even among like the indie rock set, right? So yes. like the, you know, everyone was like, ooh, the Beach Boys are actually cool. You know, those kind of right. conversations. And so uh -huh. we were, and so we could think of like friends like Papas Fritas who like were really into the Beach Boys and Fleetwood Mac and that became their kind of source of inspiration even as they're making new music. And so I think for us, we were inspired in similar ways but we ended up turning to like 60s groups that had two, you know, close harmonies, you know, two male voices together, like the Kinks, like the Beatles, that seemed to kind of yeah. suit our composition as brothers and as a band. Yeah, you know, I, I so I have a question about that later. So I'll save the Beatle, the Beatle question for later. Okay. Um, but but in terms of like holiday, so that that's a really obviously that's a really close comparison, and you know I was 
it was almost like you guys and, and Holiday, and I'm sure there were a few others, but kind of did that that similar sound with the horns and the, mm-hmm. and the, the, the expanded, I guess, the non-pavement approach. You know, pavement's obviously just, you know, kind of in your face and straightforward, whereas you guys had the horn section, so did Holiday. And um, it just, it, it really drew me in, mm. you know, and at the time I didn't really make the connection until frankly recently when I was listening to it. And then obviously the, the Beatle reference, which we'll talk about a little later. So sure. one question I do have is, you know, cause you were kind of getting into what you were listening to a little bit and, and, and kind of when you got into the Beatles, but I, re- I just had to ask you about this cause I thought it was so funny. Um, so I, I was just reading about you guys and just trying to put the pieces together and, I had read somewhere that your mother used to buy two copies of records so you wouldn't fight over them. (laughs) (laughs) And and I guess, you know, I guess I'm not really going to ask about that, but was music really a big part in your home growing up or was it just really you guys or kind of how did, how did music find you or did you find music? It was a huge part, Uh, but not necessarily in that way of like, we were having family jam sessions every day or something like that. Mm -hmm. It was more, just in the in the air at all times you know got it so i mean i I don't know about you carrick but like one of my favorite places to just like while away the afternoon was in front of the you remember those stereo cabinets that people used to have and it had the turntable and the double cassette and the radio receiver (laughs) and and so there was a lot of there was just a lot of music around to be explored i mean our mom was super into folk music and then from their 60s times and dad was really into Bob Dylan and of course they had all the Beatles albums and so those were a a favorite Uh, so yeah it was definitely in the air and then both of us were just pretty obsessed with music and pop music on our own terms throughout Mm -hmm. our childhoods right like even like things we wouldn't necessarily share with our parents like I don't think our parents were stoked to get a copy of purple rain but that's the album that's the album that i remember my mom buying two of because both (laughs) carrick and i wanted it we like wanted the poster we wanted like you know yeah that's the one that's the one i was going to mention because i think that was like the first album i ever bought and i and i insisted on having my own um (laughs) and yeah i mean the 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 weird answer to this question uh, is that, I mean, one thing is I don't think either of our parents is as obsessed as, with music as we are. Um, our dad is, you know, really obsessed with lyrics, but but can't really carry a tune. No offense, dad. Um, but <laughs> he won't be listening, each, I'm sure. But each of them oh, have siblings. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm sure we'll forward it to them. Uh, but my dad is very focused on lyrics and they're both great writers. But each of them have siblings who ended up, you know, one like very probably a little more uh, geared their lives towards music than my parents yeah. did. Um, and, you know, for me, I do think it was mostly me and Finn just on our own kind of chasing the chasing various crazy cultural trends. Um, and obviously, as the younger brother, I was often you know, Finn wanted Purple Rain and I said, I want it too, because, you know, he had it and I thought it was cool to have it. So uh, there was definitely a little bit of, of you know, Finn setting the setting the tone and, and me kind of like jumping on the bandwagon, at least when I was very little. Um, but you had but yeah, your own parents, dis- distinctive oh yeah, fancies, had, right? Oh, I know, I know. Like, yeah, I like think Jeff- you liked, I think you liked Joe Jackson and ABC yep. more than I did. Yep, Joe Jackson, <laughs> ABC, uh, <laughs> Just like random stuff. I mean, Finn was obsessed with like cowboy songs. Um, totally. When he was really little. <laughs> um, it's true. 
So, yeah, and we, we often, you know, we had basements. We moved around a lot, but there was always a basement, and the basement was where often we would have some crappy old drum set or some little 80s synths, um, and yeah. where we started doing some of our early, like, home recordings. You know, just really, like, there'd be a ping pong table and, like, a crappy old drum set and, like, a little four-track in the corner, and that was kind mm -hmm. of, like the the hangout spot and and that's where we would often um end up making our first songs including like i remember one song was like a kind of a beastie boys rap song with super yeah. distorted <laughs> drums but it like turned out really well <laughs> sounds like it needs to go needs to go on our uh, lost treasures uh, <laughs> yeah issue. absolutely dude absolutely that's awesome so you know, I at the begin at the beginning of the podcast, uh, we heard the the opening track Nine Straight Lines," which to me is about as close as it gets to a perfect pop song. Um, I, I think I wrote one of you guys, and I I said I had the chills because I was getting to speak to you about this album, mm. and I was actually listening to that song when I was writing that. Mm. There's just there's so many cool hooks, and it's just the perfect length and the harmonies. It just it's perfect. So. That was a really great song. So we're going to go ahead and hear another track, which is the second track titled Pop Phenomenon. Uh, another one of my one. favorite tracks. Yeah, man. It, it just it brings me back to 97. And um, and frankly, I'm, I mean, listen to it again all day today. So uh, <laughs> I love I love the hooks. I love the bridge. I love the 60s influence, which you mentioned earlier. So with that, we're going to go ahead and give Pop Phenomenon a listen. She's a ridiculous pop phenomenon I don't know why people put her records on And I will never be sleeping happily Until she is gone It was a Saturday, it's always a Saturday I couldn't wait to go down the street to meet my day She came skipping along, singing a new favorite song It's so wild, everybody's wild She's the only one who listens to nobody and dances with everyone. Give her a chance, you'll see how turned on you'll be, and she'll never be gone. It was a Saturday, three o'clock on a Saturday. I was sitting in the sun, waiting for my friends to come. Somebody struck up the band, no, I'm not a Superman. It's so wild, everybody's wild, everybody's got her number. Yeah, yeah. Magic of radio. <laughs> that was good. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's really. editing. Yeah, um, I was just gonna say about pop phenomenon, which I again I heard again for the first time in many years today. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, Finn, but this was like 
Somewhat inspired by Bjork, is that right? I, I think so. Really? I think so. Although I have, to, I just want to say, I'm, I'm, <laughs> it was not. I don't want to diss Bjork, like right, because she's such an amazing artist. But right. at the time, I think I had a, a bit of a fit of peak about just pop music in general, and I probably took it out. <laughs> Well, and both of both of those songs, I think, like, you know, that particular pop phenomenon has kind of a it's a love hate relationship. And, and there's a certain um, I'm not going to say sarcastic, but just kind of like sassy tone to it. And I feel like yeah. both Nine Straight Lines and pop phenomenon have this kind of sassy tone. Mm. And that's actually one of the things that struck me about the record as a, as a, an older person now listening back to like what I was doing when I was 19. Um and and I think that that's actually something that does like subtly show a pavement influence because Steve Malkmus was always like had always had his tongue firmly planted in his cheek, um, <laughs> yep. and I feel like that's a, a a a thing that maybe set us apart from some other bands around that time. If you think about like a Bell and Sebastian, it was not tongue in cheek. Although I guess there was like Arab Strap, which maybe was, but. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there was a certain sassiness that if you saw us play live, we were having fun and, and laughing about it. So, yeah, it was about Bjork, but in a in a funny, jokey way. We think Bjork is amazing. You know, she's great. But <laughs> All the maybe she'll hear this episode. Right? Yeah, yeah, maybe yeah, she'll hear yeah. it. <laughs> but you yeah, know, what? I mean, I would I, have, go ahead. I, oh, go Sorry, on. I would have never, I would have never thought Bjork had any sort of uh, influence on any of this. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, in a way, when I was listening to it today, it was it was more. I was thinking of that, and I was trying to remember, like, why was I? What it was more like riffing on Bjork as a placeholder for like a pop music celebrity, right? right. Uh, so less specifically about her, and I think Carrick's exactly right. There was like this kind of it was a love hate thing, and I really got that in that listening to that song, and maybe it's because now I'm like. A professor so I like to get all like heady about things but I, I had the same experience care of kind of listening back to something and almost analyzing it like it was someone else's song and and some of the themes I were was hearing was the just this such an attraction to pop music but then also yes. this insecurity or doubt about like do I really want to be part of that like you know indie's the best like I want to you know be myself and be real and not somehow fit into some cookie cutter paradigm so i think in some ways that song was trying to find a solution you know out of that bind and and contradiction right yeah i think um i mean that was one of the most fun songs to play live um oh yeah that was always both of these both of these would end up like at the beginning close to the beginning of our sets like in the the early days of the push king yep um and and uh, I don't know if you got this info on in your various research, but Finn and I, you know, we're brothers, uh, like typical brothers. You have to find a way to kind of like balance. We used to fight like crazy when we were kids. We have to find a way to balance it. And so we actually on all of our albums, it alternates Finn song, Carrick song, Finn song, Carrick song all the way mm. through a rule we never broke. Which is crazy. So if if anyone is ever like, oh, which who which brother is this singing lead? It's really easy to figure it out. As long as you know who sang one of the songs, you can figure out who sang lead on. And of course, we collaborated like you know, like a Lennon McCartney type of thing. We 
we would one of us would write a song and then bring it to the other and kind of like uh, mess with it occasionally. Yeah, yeah. Um, so so yeah. So on on that note, I did come across that fact and I did have a question about it, and I was going to ask where the idea came from, but it sounds like it's just straight up sibling rivalry. Then yeah, <laughs> is that all it is? Or, or, or like so. or or a smart way to avoid sibling rivalry. There you know, we go. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I would say that it was because. You know, we weren't like a Liam and Noel Gallagher, like f- fighting and, you know, beating each other up as adults. We were super, you know, we were best friends. We lived in houses together and we played in a band together and we went to parties together. Like we, we were totally, especially once we were at college, we were just like, you know, always, always hanging together, whether it was um, socially or, or in the band. So um, it was, yeah. it was a very, it was a very, uh, close and in general not fraught relationship i would say true yeah. true right That's and we didn't want to be like ray and dave davies where ray davies writes 90 percent of the songs and then every now and then you get this amazing right. dave davies gem right on those right, I just, albums i just listened to uh for some reason i was in, not even thinking about this podcast but i i listened to the whole record I can't remember what it's called. It's got a really long title, the one that Lola is on. Yeah, um, yeah, Lola versus the Power Man and the Monkey or something. Yeah, he has yes. that, that, that amazing song. Where you Strangers. Going now? I don't mind. Yeah, a beautiful that song. That song is incredible. So heartbreaking. See, Dave Davies. Dave Davies can bring it if he just gets yeah, the platform. And, and funnily enough, uh, I don't remember if you were with me the second time, but Finn and I met uh ray davies in in at a bar in like back bay in boston in college um and we had a conversation where we were telling him we are in a in a brother band and blah 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 and i don't remember exactly what he said do you remember anything about that finn i don't i don't even remember meeting him man okay. oh my god <laughs> so we met him i mean maybe you were maybe i i thought you were there i remember anyway. i remember going to the show and we had front row seats maybe he we but that's what I, I, I remember. Definitely, yeah. I met him in a, we met him in a bar. I, I I thought we were both there, but maybe I was just there. I remember I was wearing a suit and like you know <laughs> feeling very like kinks inspired or whatever, and talked to him a little bit. And then and then a few years later, once we moved to L.A., we met Dave Davies at the Rock and Roll Ralphs, like right across from the Guitar Center on Sunset Strip. <laughs> and he was just like so. Um, again, I I. Uh, you know, I don't want to put anyone down, but he just looked like he'd lived a rough life, put it that yeah. way. Yeah, um, yeah, interesting. And it's too bad. He, is he passed away, right? I'm not Gosh, sure. Gosh, I I'm not sure. I I, I don't know. All for right, sure. well, yeah. listeners can listen. Nerdy listener, listeners who are even nerdier than us can can look that up. <laughs> can but let anyway, us know. it was really cool. We we got to meet both of them. Um, and uh, yeah, I love the Kinks. And if Ray yeah, Davies happened. Wait, was it which one? Are we talking about Dave or Ray? So we met Ray in Back Bay in Boston, and we met Dave at okay. the Rock and Roll Ralphs in L.A. So uh-huh. if either of the Davies happen to be alive and listening, <laughs> uh, drop me a line so we know you're okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Brian, one other point on the alternating thing. Carrick, I, I really remember being pretty influenced by what I thought the Beatles were doing because there seems to be a kind of Lennon-McCartney alternation it's not as Is religious as, as, as we were, but I feel like if you, but maybe I'm just making that up. Again, listeners can correct us. Yeah. <laughs> but well, at least, might have the, at the least idea the, from somewhere. At least the paradigm of like one main songwriter, that, that voice coming through, even if it's a collaborative thing, right? That was very much right. a, a Beatles right. riff. So. That's you know, interesting. That's... I never noticed that with the Beatles. 
and that's going to be my next question actually was about the Beatles. So mm. I, I, I'm going to, you know, so <laughs> um, I'm a later Beatles fan. So in other words, when, you know, people are, who my friends may hear this and not like me, but then be okay with me. So <laughs> like when they were really into the Beatles, kind of like that, I don't know, 17 to 21 years old, I was more into you guys. And I was more into that sound and I didn't really understand the connection at the time. To me, it was Mm. like the Beatles and you have heard all these songs before and I've heard them a million times and yeah, they're great. And, but it wasn't until I think I got like a lot older that I started to say, wow, I mean the songwriting and and really what they were doing at the time was just so far ahead and, and no one else was doing it. And then I started making the connections to people like you and and the other folks that that have that influence to their music. So, you know, I wanted to ask you because when I've been listening to the album the last couple of weeks, getting ready for this, I mean, I hear obviously it's all over that album in terms yeah. of the instrumentation and the and the vocals and there's it's all over it. So, like, what was it that you that you connected to in the Beatles? Was it I mean, was it the Lennon-McCartney songwriting, the lyrics, the harmonies? Was it the instrumentation? Was it the fact that they were doing things that no one else had ever done before? What was it that maybe just had that influence on you? Um, all of all of the above. I would okay. Say. All of the above. Yeah. To start, you know, and and I think I th- I have it. I can relate to what you're saying about. I mean, the Beatles are one of those things that if you if you grew up in you know, England or America or even anywhere in the world at a certain point, you know, in a certain span of time and you're into rock and roll, you're going to know all their albums like back mm-hmm. to front. Right. And so Carrick and I definitely had that experience growing up because we just played them on vinyl all the time at our, at our house. But at least for me, and, and I think Carrick shares this too, a lot of the inspiration was like, whoa, like trying out a real recording studio for the first time and using the recording studio as an instrument and and revisiting Beatles albums and and they they just opened up in a whole new way when you started to think about the arrangements, the instrumentation and the production. So yeah, on, on some le- there's that like super fundamental just love for that music, but then that was layered with this appreciation for the craft of recording and when I was listening to the album today, I was thinking of that a lot, how it felt like I could really hear us laboring over little choices like, oh, should a, should, should a piano go there in the, in the break? And, you know, should we, what synthesizer sound should we use? And, and so I think we really loved that feeling of just like being in the studio, not knowing what time it was, and just focusing so intently on crafting a song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I and I think that as Finn said, the you know they were like, they're obviously the biggest pop rock and roll band of all time, but they also, if you get deep, they're very experimental and sort of um, just avant garde in their approach to pop music. And I actually think even as our you know we did a couple other records that probably sounded less like the Beatles, but still had some of the same like. I think you can make music that has the same approach as the Beatles without sounding anything like the Beatles. And that's this kind Mm. of experimentation 
Um, and yeah, focusing on really crafting a good arrangement and a good song. Um, you know, I think that like, there's not very, very many bands besides the Beatles that have true bangers, like start to finish. Like every mm -hmm. single song is insanely good. And even now I'm, you know, I constantly listen to whole albums and I like, uh, you know, I love, I love a couple songs, but that's such a rare thing. Um, yeah. I think, you know, uh, so that's like, in a way, the Beatles were just like the water that we swam in as people growing up in America in the time that we've been growing up in America. And I'm all, I think as, as people in a band who were constantly being compared, oh, who are your influences? Oh, you must love the Beatles. You must love the Raspberries. You must love the Kinks, blah, blah, blah. I think at times the Beatles, it sounded so obvious that we, that everybody was influenced by the Beatles that I would actually get like sick of hearing it. And, <laughs> and so, you know, I, I'm, I don't feel quite that same way now, but I have a little bit of that, like it grates on me to talk about the Beatles because then I'm just like another like nerdy dude with a bowl cut who, um, who <laughs> loves, loves Beatles and never got famous. You know what I mean? Like there's a certain like, um, there's a certain like uh, stigma attached to that like type of person um, or that type of band. And so to me, like, I love them so deeply, but I also, you know, there were so many other influences that went into this record. For, like I said, Pulp, David Bowie, Stevie Wonder, like, you know, Marvin Gaye. There was a lot of other stuff we were listening to. And I think it was kind of like, you know, the Beatles were the, were the, you know, the integer of one or whatever that everything else was built on. But, um, mm. but, but sometimes at times we would get sick of talking about it. And I'm not saying I'm sick of talking about it now, but it's just interesting that it, I have mixed feelings about being a band that made a record that was so obviously Beatles influenced. Right. Yeah. Well, also because there's this whole, the whole power pop movement in the 70s is like so self-consciously Beatlesque, you know? I mean, Carrick right. mentioned the Raspberries. I feel like the Raspberries is one of those bands that we probably didn't listen to until someone reviewed our record and compared us to the raspberries and then we were like oh let's go check out the raspberries that happened also with like 10 cc and with uh, a couple other bands bad bad finger i think crowded house yeah so so there's a i, I can relate to what Carrick's saying that just this these kind of callow youths who love the beatles and are just disciples of the beatles you know and have maybe your own feelings and sensibility gets a little bit lost when because all people hear is Beatles 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 you know so so I can I can relate to that that feeling of just being like a little bit I don't know ambivalent about it but, but it's there I, man it's really it's oh, I, it's definitely I can, there. I can vouch for that it's a strong influence <laughs> but you know I, mean, I wonder how many how many folks from that time like myself and in that were were that familiar with the Beatles. And I know mm. that might sound a little, I don't know, it sounds probably crazy now, but I wasn't that, that knowledgeable about the Beatles work. So I, I didn't, I didn't really make the connection obviously yeah. until now. So now that I hear it and now that we're talking about this, I, I, I kind of feel like obviously there's, there's, there's influences throughout. We, we cover that, but it's almost like you took, you took the, Oh boy, I hate talking about your music with you, but that you took like the the later the later Beatles, not the fun-loving Beatles, uh, even though that's there too, 
And then I think kind of above that is where you inserted your style and your sound. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's not, I mean, I don't, I, I guess I wouldn't be so hard on the fact that you made a, a Beatles influenced album because you know, so much of it is out there because it's there, but I don't, it didn't hit me in the face. It, right. I heard gotcha. it. I heard it in 2022 as a 48 year old, but back when <laughs> I was, I don't know how old I was, but I didn't hear it back then. So I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Right, and but, I don't mean to say I don't mean to say like it would be no. silly of me to be like, hey, I actually I hate the Beatles. Like, why right. are you? At? You know what I mean? Like, right. obviously, I love the Beatles, and and every time somebody said, oh, your your voice sounds like Paul McCartney, or you guys sound like Lennon McCartney, I would be like, fuck yeah, that's great. Would, <laughs> you know, inside, I was stoked about it because they're so fucking good. Oh, it's yeah. just like it's a great compliment, you know? Oh, um, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you rather. I think you're right, Brian, on the late Beatles stuff. Probably mostly because that's when the music, the studio, and the studio craft really comes to the fore, and that was what we were really relating to. I mean, another influence I heard really strongly, Carrick, was David Bowie. I mean, you hear it especially on the the song DJ, but but we were both really into, you know, early '70s Bowie, Hunky Dory, Spiders from Mars, and. And that has a similar debt, or maybe it's just from a similar time period and milieu in, to the Beatles in the sense of, you know, really maxing out the studio as a place of, you know, craftsmanship. You know, and, T- you got- and T-Rex also. Yes. <laughs> like Transformer, <laughs> Transformer era T-Rex is, yep. is another thing we were listening to a lot of at the time, I think. You guys, you know, I saw you live and, you know, a lot of bands... They, they, they prefer one or the other, I think. I don't know that everybody loves recording and playing live, but mm. you guys seem like you enjoyed playing live also. Was it equal in terms of live and the recording process? That is a good question. Um, I would say that, yeah, I would say that I loved playing live in some ways equally to being in the studio, but that playing live, it has so much, like, BS attached to it in terms of like loading in and loading out and it sounding bad and you know you not being able to quite make it sound exactly as you uh as as the record sounds and that being frustrating like I would say playing live was um at times a frustrating experience you know I mean I, I hear about like um oh man blanking on the on the lead singer of ELO um help me out Jeff Lynn Jeff, Jeff, Lynn. Lynn. Yep. Jeff Lynn, like he, he basically said that he didn't like to play live because he just didn't have enough control. And I yeah. can totally identify with that at times. Um, there's a there's a, a YouTube video, like probably the only YouTube video of the Push Kings live that is still living online, which is us playing this show at, uh, at Green Street Grill, which uh, I think we maybe played there more than once, but at least once. And it yeah, looks like Cambridge. such... It looks like such a fun show, and you can tell we're having a blast. But also, I'm like, oh wow, the tempos are all over the place, and like, oh man, like what a sloppy sounding band, you know? Um, and, and so yeah, I think I think it was that push and pull. It was very very fun, but you were always striving to achieve a level of polish that that you know is basically impossible live um, unless unless you're using like insane amounts of backing tracks and everybody's playing to a click. I mean, it is possible to make a record, to make a live show sound exactly like a record, but then you lose 
you know, 80% of the personality and the energy and, you know, um, I think there was, we were very, very excited when we were playing live. And I think that was like something that was infectious for the audience. So that sloppiness probably came from, from the excitement that we felt and we were playing everything, you know, way faster than it was on the record. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, the, I feel like the highs playing live are maybe higher overall, you know, but then mm. as Carrick said, there's some like real lows and valleys like when your amp breaks <laughs> or like you know you you keep on breaking strings or the manager of the club like switches your set time and all your fans miss you like there's a lot there is a lot of stress <laughs> involved in it uh but i'd say when when things were going well live and there's a, just a few shows that i really remember in those in those terms including one in detroit i think uh, on, a, on a later a later tour, uh, not Zoots, but like at that bowling alley venue, there are just some, the magic, just some stick. magic stick, magic stick. There are just some peaks that, that for me define like the real transcendence I feel from music and like why I love it so much, you know, whereas the yeah. studio is sometimes a little bit more of a deliberate process, maybe more satisfying, but you kind of just grind it out, you know, yeah. and uh, over time and, those those I think a lot of my favorite memories of like specific moments or have to of being in the band have to do with playing live and then also just being on tour like I always used to love the single mindedness of just the band the instruments the van you wake up you drive you play the show you have a couple beers you go to bed you repeat you know I just I loved that Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's not and, very predictable. And I was, I was always the person like, let's go out on tour, guys. Like, let's you know, trying to persuade everyone else to drop everything and and go on tour. I just loved the road so much. Interesting. Yeah, you know, I mean, I that's what I was curious about because I, I just, it's hard to love both. I think equally, but you can love them both probably for different reasons. Mm-hmm. And you know, when I, I spoke to uh, Dusty from Rocket Ship and. I told him, I was like, you know, I would, you're on my bucket list. I would have loved to have seen you live. I just think your sound translates so well live. And he said the same thing. He's like, all the BS about do I have enough picks and, you know, <laughs> like all of that kind of stuff. He said it just bothered him. And he was like, it, it's so hard to reproduce their sound live. And he just hated it. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. But, but I would have loved to have seen him live, you know. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that um, like another another thing to add to the mix is just like the adventure of touring is is something that's as finn said you know it's it's just unforgettable and so even if the music part of it is sloppier or more chaotic like it's made up for by the by the adventure of being on tour and all the people you meet and you know it really is like if i think about my life as a musician there's a lot of you know probably some of the memories that have stuck with me the most have been on on tour whether i'm on stage or off stage or whatever um i remember the studio also but as finn said it's not it's 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 more yeah deliberate um i think you know finn studies uh vedic texts but also (laughs) the performance of vedic texts which is like, you know, a ritualistic musical experience in a way. Mm. And Finn can mm-hmm. speak to that more. And I think 
that when you're playing with a bunch of people on stage, it's closer to the ritualistic kind of like primal purpose of music. Absolutely. Whereas if you're making a record in a studio, chances are you're not doing a ton of that. You're probably, you know, playing the, the basic tracks, so bass and drums, and then you redub the bass and then you redub the guitar. So there's not as much of that kind of ritualistic okay, guys, let's get in a groove together and let's like feed off of each other's energy. And I think um, I think that's something that makes live live performance uh, probably more profound on a certain level, but, um, you know, just totally different. Yeah. And that was a tension that we struggled with, Kara. Do you remember like we would get feedback from people like uh, Eric Masanaga, who put out this record. He started Sealed Fade and produced the record we're talking about. But sometimes he would give us advice like, oh, you guys are so awesome live. It's so stripped down. It's so raw. Like, let's just do a record like that. And and I remember at the time right. we we like were like, no, like <laughs> we want to overdub. <laughs> we want to, you know, put turntables on it. We want to do this. We want to we wanted to try everything. But looking back now, I can see the wis- wisdom in Eric's advice. Right. Because I right. think he was wanted to capture some of that vitality and energy that only happens on stage it's so hard to capture i mean it's it's something that people chase so much yeah but often doesn't it doesn't necessarily pay off or you know i've heard so many stories of people saying oh yeah we started out making the record like that Mm. but then you just can't resist the tug of perfectionism And you're like, well, let's just overdub this little bit, or let's just move these kick drums a little so they're a little closer to being on the on <laughs> on the grid, you know. Um, right. Well, especially now, you know, I mean, with with the Pro Tools of the world and all the editing, yes. I mean, I just I I didn't record during that era, but I I could just imagine becoming completely obsessive about it. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, in this in this album. I guess Pro Tools was in the background. It was recorded to tape. Mm-hmm. And right, Carrick? I, I feel yeah. like maybe yeah. Eric did a use Pro Tools on one or two tracks that had. Did he use them? Maybe not. No, maybe no, that he, was just he, more... on this on this record. I don't know if he did on this record. I know on Far Places he did because there yes, were, yeah. you know, Far Places we started getting more into hip hop and just and like loops and things. Yeah. And yeah. So he was, you know, uh, there was like, there was, I remember like on uh, Orange Glow, there was something, there was a kick drum groove that I was just like, you know, I wanted it to sound like hip hop. And so he ended up going into Pro Tools and kind of like moving kicks around. Um, yeah. But I think Eric gets, I, I should, I would like to make sure we, we give him some credit in terms of kind of guiding us. Oh, yeah. We, you know, we're, we're super young kids and uh, just like guiding us. He, he would... I think sometimes we'd be like, let's do it in Pro Tools. And he'd be like, no, you're going to lose some of the, you know, some of the groove or some of the humanity. So he, he definitely was often pushing us, uh, pushing back, as Finn said, on, on that kind of like, let's try to get catch capture some of that energy of the live shows. And we were so obsessed with like Missy Elliott. And like, you know, this is this is as as the kind of like. As we moved from our Beatley phase to our more funky electronic phase, um, we I think part of it was was wanting to get into more of that yeah loops and and programming and stuff. 
Yeah, and, and it's funny that I hear all that now because I, I do have the later albums as well, and, and you're right, that the, the sound definitely changed as time went on. I guess I didn't realize Missy Elliott was a big, uh, big influence. <laughs> one, of the many, one of the many ones I could throw out there. Yeah, yeah. I, I missed that one too. Um, yeah. So we're going to take a l- listen to another song, which is uh, obviously I picked only my favorite tracks here, but we're going to hear the 11th track on the album, which was Jenny G., and you know i just love it i love the horns and it's just the rhythm section so tight very cool guitar solo at the end and uh so let's go ahead and give jenny g a listen when we were young we used to see each other every saturday and when i grew i drew impressions of you when you were away you were my babysitter i wonder if you knew that i loved you how can you say it never happened when the hairspray's gone away that's what you told me yesterday you say what she says it's all the same to me
that that's that's a that's a classic oh yeah it's a classic <laughs> i only picked the classic it's, it's a classic it's it's a classic song without a chorus it's got an <laughs> instrumental chorus so that that's one of the things that i think is cool i'm like okay you're there's right. a really cool yes. horn lick but no chorus you're right it's in yeah. place of yeah, and that was always so big live when we did that, Carrick. You know, because you would kind of start it off on your own, and the club would be really quiet, and then it became a crowd favorite pretty quickly. Right. Okay. How did we do that? How did we do? Because obviously we didn't have a horn player. How did we? Did we just play it on guitar, or it was just like a kind of like? I think out? so. Yeah, I think you would kind of play it, and then the that uh, that amazing fast beat would come in, and that and 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 then the instrumental chorus just was so great live because people would just be like jumping up and down and yeah. right. dancing and going crazy. I was one of those people. I remember that actually. As we're sitting here talking about <laughs> it. <laughs> and then I was thinking, did they have a, a horn section? Like, no, they didn't have a horn section. That's nope. really neat how you did it. No. Uh, you know, I always like to ask about the, the artwork and because I'm, I'm a firm believer that the artwork plays a huge role in, in just the overall aesthetic, the sound. I mean, it's really what you probably see the artwork more than you actually listen to the recording. So I think it's really important. And, mm. you know, for those of you who, who are the listeners who haven't seen the cover, um, it's got a picture of, of the four of you. I mean, looking super happy and excited and um, kind of superimposed or imposed over the top is like an edge to edge uh, Push Kings logo, which I think really captures that that music that you find inside. What went into the decision in terms of the artwork and the design? Um, I think that we, I mean, I remember very clearly that we had this effect in mind and it took us a while to figure out how to do it, you know, because this was before everybody had Photoshop on their laptop or whatever. So we actually, you know, this was a a photo shoot we did with the drummer, Dave Benjamin's, like one of his best friends. Is it David Jacobs? Is that his name? Yep. Dave J. And so we did this photo shoot, um, you know, I remember this outfit that I'm wearing was like, you know, we saw this movie blow up um, the Antonioni movie. I think it's Antonioni. Uh, And I was this was Mm -hmm. like the outfit that I was like, okay, I'm going to put together an outfit, which is exactly like the dude from blow up, which is like white jeans and like a checked shirt. Um, And I think the effect I I wouldn't be surprised if we saw it on a Beach Boys record. Yeah. Um, But we ended up having to find a somebody who would make a transparency which would basically would be laid over the photo and then scanned again mm-hmm. um yeah so yeah and then the photo on the back is really cool too it's from the same photo shoot and we're just like sitting by a, a by a swimming pool if i'm not mistaken although i'm not looking at it right yeah now. right by the right by the charles I river what, what pool and i is have that? a memory <laughs> it's just it's probably been redone but it's a public pool in the city of cambridge just right on on Mem Drive there. We just like Charles hopped River. the fence when it was closed because like there's nobody there, which is one of the things that makes it. Yeah, cool. I don't. I don't even think it was fenced in. Maybe you could just walk in. But yeah. Diff- it was different times back yeah, right. then. You know, very different. <laughs> but I I remember Carrick about that that we had to really labor with Dave J because if I'm not mistaken, we used that transparency and they actually developed. They printed the photo like that. Oh wow! So the the parts if that. Am, That's am I no. That I th- up? It was. I it was something like that. It was a very old school. Yeah, I think it was like super old school. We might have been yeah. like, yeah, he might have like taken a photo enlarger and laying a, a transparency over it, and and then yeah, printed yep. the photo. Wow, jeez. Printed it. Printed it with the kind of the the so that the parts were hidden to form the so that the photo formed the letters. 
exactly. And I yeah. tell myself, I tell myself that it looks a little bit different than if we had done it on Photoshop, but who knows? <laughs> Used it the hard way, or the only way yeah, at the exactly. time. Stubbornly, <laughs> stubbornly analog. That's right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you figured you recorded it to tape. I mean, that was, you were like ahead of your time. Or, yeah, exactly. Or, or, I'll, ta- I'll tape, I'll film. Yeah. <laughs> the hard way, well, I call and, it. And I was, I mean, I remember, um, you know, I studied film in college, and Harvard was a place where you didn't have a choice but to shoot on film and to edit on, like, like we were editing something called a Steenbeck, so like a super old school, like, film editing machine, and they wanted us to understand even though there was an avid in the other room, they wanted us to understand like how the analog stuff works. So we were definitely in, mm. in a, in a phase collectively, which was like, okay, we do have all these computers and stuff, but like, we want to try to make it sound and look like, like we don't. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was conscious then that wasn't just out of need. I mean, that was something you set out to, to do. Um, I don't know that we would have, I don't. I, I remember thinking, how the hell are we going to pull off this effect and not knowing how we could have done it? So okay. maybe somebody with a computer might have been able to do it, but we certainly we tried to figure out how we were going to pull it off, and this was the only way we we could figure it out. Yeah, you did. You did it with what you knew. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and as for the the analog thing in the studio, that was just the gold standard. I mean, people were starting to use Pro Tools, but mainly just for editing. And so when we felt like, hey, we're finally in this in a, a real studio with a two-inch tape machine we were just so committed to using these classic tools that had been that had gone into the making of all our favorite albums from the 60s and yeah. 70s yeah you know i i i love obviously i love the analog sound i mean vinyl detroit is the name of course but um you know it, it's when once it and you know once they in that era once it was mastered there was so much like compression and just gamesmanship being mm. played and that that's too bad. I would love to hear that original tape. Yes. Oh. Mental note, we had they're they're being stored somewhere in Boston, Carrick, yeah, and we have to uh, we need to go pick them I gotta up. follow up on that. <laughs> yeah. Now we gotta find a two inch tape machine. <laughs> <laughs> well yeah, I think they're gonna like they're gonna basically take the tapes out make sure that they're still like make sure that they're dry yeah. and and uh and then transfer them you know digitize them and then we'll probably store them at one of our houses you know in, in a basement somewhere <laughs> move it from uh <laughs> yeah from the east coast to someone's basement exactly <laughs> uh you know i wanted to ask you about one of my one of my all-time favorite al- songs on the album and I, and I didn't realize the backstory until i started researching this but um mrs mccain and i didn't and i didn't know that I didn't know anything about the relationship and, and that, you know, that, that she, that the painter, Margaret, uh, Margaret Williams Sargent was your great grandmother. And I, then when I listened to the track, I was like, Oh my God, this is so great. So I just wanted to ask you about that story and, and maybe a little bit about what, how that made it on the album. And just maybe you could tell me more about it. Yeah. So our mom is one of nine children comes from a big family and that's the Moores in Moore Garrity. And her sister, Honor, is a writer and poet and memoirist. And she wrote this great book about their grandmother. So our great-grandmother, Margaret Sargent. And it was called The White Blackbird. And I highly recommend it. It's, it's 
amazing it's an amazing read even if you're not related to the woman i think and and it kind of chronicles her career as a as a painter and a person who struggled with you know depression and alcoholism and other issues and as a woman just trying to express herself artistically and that's the story we learned when honor published the book but then that kind of filled in a lot of gaps related to her paintings which had always been in our house forever so so i think for years i would know that these were her paintings that were hanging on our walls or on my aunts and uncles walls and they're these very distinctive early 20th century portraits in a I don't even know what style to call it exactly. I would exactly, say it's like it, I would it's say it's expressionism. Kind of expressionist, yeah. So she's kind of painting in the early part of the 20th century. So so when the when the book came out and that was probably published right around the time, you know, the Push Kings were really getting going, I kind of devoured it because it gave the backstory and the the life to these works of art that I had grown up around and and it was part of our family and so that was really exciting too and I guess I I wrote that song just because I, I, I identified with her a lot first because she was a, my great-grandmother uh, but I didn't really have the experience of meeting her uh, except for one time I met her as a, a, a kid and she was institutionalized and she kind of was probably in her 70s or 80s and she had crazy white hair and and she screamed at me like get him out of here like I, you know I don't like children or something something nightmarish so so I had that little that little bond that moment from deep in my in my childhood when I had seen her and it was kind of scary but she made an impression on me and then I loved her art and then I had the book that made it all very fresh and filled in all these gaps thanks to Honor's research. And I guess I just wrote a a song to her and I put it in the you know, I gave I I chose the name McCain, which would be the name that she married into. And that's my middle name. And I think I chose I, I chose that because it, it kind of made that connection real, right? That we somehow shared a shared a name. And it was just me trying to, through music, in the way that only music can, like or poetry or literature can, journey back and kind of speak to her. Mm-hmm. And part of what I wanted to, to express was just sympathy and admiration tinged with, I think, a lot of sadness about the struggle she went through and, you know, I've dealt with depression and anxiety in my life, you know, for years. And, and even then it was something that I was struggling to come to terms with, maybe especially then. So I think for all those reasons, it was just a, a kind of different kind of song for me because often I would just write a, a love song or a song about some feeling or some feeling of nostalgia about being young or having a crush on someone or hating some pop star, right? But this was much more personal and almost, you know, trying to forge this connection with this with this person who I 
felt I never really got mm-hmm. to know. I mean, it's a beautiful song. And, you know, I, 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 I always wondered, you know, what was it about, you know, a neighbor or like, I didn't really know. Mm-hmm. And then when I got into it and I read about it, I was, I was like, I, it just hit me really hard that, you know, that this was a family member. And, and then once I read her story, mm-hmm. you're exactly right. I mean, she was going through struggles during that time that, I mean, not only being a woman, but dealing with, you know, the mental health issues and the alcoholism and, and just, there was so much there that when I listened to the song, it, I mean, it just really made me emotional. It was just really well done. And I mean, mm. I think you, I think you did mm. a really, really good, really good job and a real service to her. So. I agree. Yeah. I, I love that song. I mean, I also think that w- when I was listening to it today, it also has some humor to it, you know, like the line, uh, about her being half insane. Like there's just like a tiny touch right. of like light lightness also, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. And not, not in a way that's like disparaging to her or anything, but, um, no, it's like a, it's a really cool song. Um, and it's always, I mean, it's funny, the two songs you chose both have like, kind of like some, Mrs. McCain a little bit more than Jenny G, but also Jenny G was like, there, there, there was like a babysitter that I was thinking of a little bit. Not that I actually had an affair with or anything, but like, <laughs> the we, truth you, comes you out. chose both the, yeah, you chose two, these two songs are both like little short stories, um, which I think is, is yeah. one of the things that I, that I like about them. Um, mm. and, uh, yeah, and, and, and yeah, one of them being true nonfiction and the other being like fiction with a tiny touch of reality right. in terms of just having having a crush on various babysitters over the years. Um, okay, Carrick, let's talk about the babysitter. No. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we need a song now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I and I guess I you know I would like to obviously play this track because I lo- I love it so much. It means so much to me. It's it's usually one of the first three tracks that I'll put on when I put on the album. So let's go ahead and give Mrs. McCain a spin. Century. How does 
does it feel to see the dream is winding down? Is it easy to believe? Is the past no small reprieve? Is there nothing more than the march of time? Another long dark night, Mrs. McCain, but it's alright. There's angels singing in the sky, and they're smiling. It's just a memory, and that's all that it'll ever be. But if you close your eyes, you'll see you're almost standing next to me. Yeah, it's just a memory, and that's all that it'll ever be. But if you close your eyes, you'll see you're almost standing next to me. And I'm never, 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 never gonna leave you. But no, I'm never, 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 never gonna leave you. It really is. A, it's really a beautiful song. And, and once I read her story, I just I couldn't believe I mean, you did a great job just honoring her. And, and you're right. There's mm. there is a little bit of a little bit of tongue in cheek humor that kind of kind of was tongue in cheek, but that does kind of lighten it a bit. Um, but still, it's it's just it's really beautiful. So love great. It. Right. And, and really great. And in that in that humor, though, there's there's like a lot of like hard truth, because yeah. remember, I said when I was a child, I, I met her. And she was basically totally crazy <laughs> and screamed at me and scared the shit out of me, basically. Uh, and so there was a way in which I meant it when I said half insane, because that was kind of descriptively true. Yeah. But but then also it was maybe an effort to kind of go back and relive that moment and not make it just be about pain, like make it be about some kind of connection yeah. or affection or, or love. Right, right. There's, I mean, there's still a family member in there somewhere, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So Finn, you do, do you, you do actually remember that meeting her? Oh yeah. I mean, that might be, it might honestly be my earliest childhood memory because it was wow. so traumatizing. <laughs> How bad. <laughs> wow. Uh, so you know, we're, we're almost, we're almost done here and this has been fantastic. And, um, I've loved listening to you guys talk about the album and talk about your inspirations and, and family. And it's just, it's been so good for me. And I do always ask this question during every interview that I do or every conversation, because I think it's, I think it's a nice way to kind of wind down the discussion, but looking back on, you know, on the recording and the writing of the album and picking songs and sequencing and all the things that go into putting together an album, is there anything you guys would have done differently now looking back on it? great great question yeah oh goodness i mean it's so strange to listen to music that you made uh you know 20 25 however many years ago it is um because you know the way i sing is totally different the way finn sings is totally different now uh Mm. There's like at times I, I guess my my short answer is like no I wouldn't do anything different I think it's awesome and it's it's a work of art that's finished and obviously it's it's I'm not gonna like go back and remix the songs or whatever um, at times it strikes me as like 
like there are certain lines where I'm like, couldn't you have made that sound a little tougher somehow? Like there's a certain tweeness to it that I'm kind of like, you know, there's an innocence to it of, of you know, mm-hmm. people in their early 20s that I guess sometimes listening back is a little bit uh, like sounds naive, I would say. Um, mm. And that goes for like the way I sang and also like the point of view that we are expressing. Um, but it's not like any like particular things I would change, but just like a reflection on how different my point of view is um, now from what it was then. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's really interesting. What do you think, Ben? Well, I, it's an interesting question to entertain because as we were talking about, we labored over that album so much and every track and every take was debated, contested, talked about, right? So in a way, it's impossible to imagine that we would have made a different album at that time because every single choice was so deliberate, you know? Yes, yes, Like totally. it, it's, it's pretty hard to go back and say, oh, well, well, we should have done it this way because our whole process working with, you know, Dave Benjamin on the drums and Matt Fishback with all his amazing bass fills and arguing over, you know, what fill should go where. I mean, I was really appreciating as I listened to it the way Matt's bass is so melodic and, and hooky and, and introduces certain parts and like Dave's drums swell and in in amazing ways. But man, we argued over almost every detail about that and, and, right. and thought about it, right? Um, and so right, I we guess... Did, we did our best. We did our absolute we did our, best. Yeah, we were just like <laughs> trying to bringing our best and trying to realize our ambitions as we understood them then with the with our our bodies and talents as they were then, right? And and so I want to echo what Carrick said, like I feel super proud of it as a work of art that, you know, it, it has its debts to the Beatles and 60s music of various kinds, but it also is just the Push Kings, yeah. you know? And it's yeah. fully realized for where we were at at that time, the way we like to dress, the kind of music we like to listen to, the kind of emotions we were feeling. Uh, that said, there are moments when if I have a regret, it would be that it's too studied and too controlled and that I, I, there's, there's, I always have Eric Masanaga's voice in my head, like, gosh, I'd really like to hear what all those songs sounded like realized in a more live way or in a rougher or in a more raw way. Right. Right. Definitely. It's definitely studied and it sounds like some you know four nerdy harvard boys at at, at, at certain (laughs) certain moments um and and i just like since we haven't talked about them much i would like to again shout out matt fishbeck and david benjamin it was you know finn and i were the principal songwriters but it was really a band and it was we had such awesome times together and and we really influenced each other and um Mm. I actually bumped into Fishbeck the other night. I hadn't seen him in a while. Um, and we just like had a, a quick chat. And um, yeah, I think listening back today, Fishbeck contributed this obsession with like uh, English, English, well, like English music from many eras, but especially like 80s and 90s uh, English Britpop. And, uh, you know, in those bass lines, like on nine straight lines, like, if I were had if I had played the baseline of that song, I certainly wouldn't have come up with this like crazy melodic like sort of new ordery sounding baseline under mm-hmm. this more uh, 60s song. Um, and I think that is what gave it that kind of 
uh, like specifically '90s sound is like it's mm-hmm. it's not it's not from the '60s. It's from the '90s, and and yeah. that comes through because there's plenty of kind of '80s and '90s influences in there. Um, and then Dave Benjamin, just like such an amazing funky drummer and a very like. Uh, you know, thoughtful person. Like we had so many incredible, just like discussions about art and music and literature and everything over the years. Um, so yeah, I mean, listening back, I really miss those guys and, and, uh, mm-hmm. definitely felt very nostalgic for, for that, uh, for that, you know, early, early push Kings era. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you know, we in, in a couple of the other interviews that I did that kind of keeps showing up that, you know, making music with your friends and in, in that time in your life, it's just something you can't recreate now. And so when you look back mm-hmm. on it, I mean, it just it you treasure it so much. You know, at the time you, know, mm-hmm. you, you fussed about, you know, whether the bass was too loud or who's going to who's going to pay for dinner or whatever. But, you know, when you look <laughs> back on it, you're like, you know, those were really some of the best times. And, 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 yeah. and you got to share it with your brother both of you guys so i think that's that's maybe even more special totally totally yeah, yeah. and hopefully you know hopefully it won't be the last time you know it's Carrick yes. and i live on diff- different coasts now but we're always well entertaining the idea of making music again uh absolutely we don't man. quite realize absolutely. it yeah we're we're both uh you know yeah it's hard to find time when you're when you're you know life life gets busy but uh yeah we de- i mean the cool thing is since we're brothers we do see each other a lot and we do you know finn always has a t- tiny portable guitar with him no matter where we are so uh <laughs> usually usually my mom demands a sing-along <laughs> at some point on every family vacation and and uh and and so that makes it fun the push kings uh are, are still playing very small reunion only acoustic shows for our children and nieces and nephews and cousins. everybody's eighth birthday exactly. right everybody's eighth birthday yeah exactly every but you won't be you won't it won't be announced and nobody will mention the push kings but we will be playing songs at, you know uh by the lake in upstate new york <laughs> guys thanks for joining me today i mean this has been so much fun it, it's it, I mean, it's more. It was more fun than I even thought it would be to kind of catch up with you guys, and frankly, to hear two brothers talk about, you know, their music and their lives and their relationships. And and I really, I really thank you so much for taking the time. This has been great. Thanks so much, Brian. It's been amazing. Thanks, Brian, and and good luck with this Vinyl Detroit podcast. I love it. Well, thank you so much. I'm, I'm yeah, glad... I'm excited to hear it. And uh, good, good, took good talking to you guys. Absolutely. So you know, I guess before you go, so you can hear me out here. Um, we're going to close this show with actually a song that somebody mentioned early on. I think it was when we were talking about the Beatles. And it's it's one of my favorite tracks, of course, and it's DJ. And, you know, it's got, at least looking back on it now, talking to you and hearing it, it's really got that, I think, that later beat, that come together, let it be undertone. There's plenty of strings and acoustic guitars, and I just think it's a really neat track. So we're going to go ahead and close this show out with that. And again, guys, thank you so much, and I will keep you posted as to when you'll be able to hear this. Great. Awesome. Thank you. Can't wait to hear it. Cool. Thanks, guys. Bye. Later. She took a cab uptown And if you didn't talk to her You know what? Well, you deserve it She was at your Center. 
She was looking really tan No longer dating Stan And you say Oh girl, what do you mean When you say you go clean You're the laughter of that little boy So many little pets That's how she likes to kiss Where's the music? Where's the DJ tonight? Where's the DJ tonight? In the Sao Palacio My golden bracelet rings I'm a policeman's dream As he dozes off on Prince Street Yeah Watching the shadows made by sycamores And she says that sometimes in my sleep I hear the bugs on the wall And sometimes they fall And then they used to wake me just like again for listening to this which was episode 14 of the vile detroit podcast i had a ton of fun on this episode speaking with finn and carrick morgarity of push kings where we discussed their 1997 self-titled album on seal fate records it's been an album that meant a lot to me over the years i think it's really a a perfect piece of pop music uh in an indie vein and I was really, really thrilled to speak to them about their influences and really, really what made uh, them pursue the type of music that they did. Uh, it was great hearing about their, uh, their songwriting process, a little bit about how they sequenced the albums and all those little things that you never really get to hear from some of your favorite artists, which is really why I do this podcast in, in, in reality. Between this episode and the previous one was 
One of my listeners, and in fact, one of my previous guests, wrote me a message on Instagram and asked who performed the opening music for this podcast. And it's actually me, and I'm surprised it took this long for someone to ask that. Uh, I recorded it here in my home probably about 10 or 11 years ago directly to a computer. And it was one of those moments where I felt this urge to get back into music. But as we all know, family and and commitments sometimes get in the way of those things. Um, But I thought it was really special to add it. And again, I wanted to thank uh, Glenn for asking me about who wrote that and and really the kind words that he provided uh, with respect to that music. So uh, for those of you who were wondering about that, the mystery has been solved. And I will continue to use that music, uh, frankly, until I come up with something better. So again... Thank you for listening to this episode of the Vinyl Detroit Podcast. As always, you can hear this and other previous episodes of the podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Those may include Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. To reach me, you can drop me an email at vinyldetroit.podcast at gmail.com or even visit my Instagram page, which is really my main social outlet, Uh, for the sharing and love of my music and that's at vinyl underscore detroit on instagram again thank you for listening to this episode i've got plenty more coming that are going to be very very good and i'm super excited to share them with you guys so with that we're going to close out this episode with another one of my favorite songs by the push kings it's near the end of the album and it is entitled number ones and we really didn't speak too much about this song but uh, it is one of my favorite songs off the album, and I thought it would be the appropriate track to end this, this conversation. So thanks again for listening, and this is Number Ones by Push Kings. Will there be no more number ones that we could play on our radio? And will the pop just melt away On one bright day When nothing goes his way Will there be no more number ones That a young boy sang Out in the sun I got just one thing to tell you What you hear today You'll be singing tomorrow Will there be no more number ones That we could play And if the bell in 
Singing tomorrow 